Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. Hello, everyone. Hey, I hope you're having a great day, and I hope that your answer is not due to the election results or the lack thereof. In other words, PK, I'm having a great day because so-and-so won, or... PK, I'm having a rough day because so-and-so won. Because the truth is, we don't know who won at this point. Uh, Full disclosure, if you're watching this at home online, I am uh, taping this Wednesday morning on the 4th, and everything is still very much up in the air. I also wrote most of this message prior to even election day, before we knew anything. You know, I've done a lot of post-election sermons. I think the first one was um, when Abraham Lincoln defeated uh, Hannibal Hamlin back in 1860. I'm kidding. But I have done eight of these, and this is my ninth one. And this one is by far the most difficult for two reasons. I am wired to explain and clarify things. That's what I do. This is what God's Word says about this, and therefore... This is still so up in the air, and it might be for a while, so it's hard to explain and clarify what's happened because we don't know what's happened. The second reason, though, is because we have two candidates for president and two political parties that have radically different visions and plans and agenda for the future of America. Now, that's not my opinion, okay? That's not my guess. Uh, That's based on what they themselves have said, what their uh, written political platforms are, and who they will pick to lead in key positions. We're at a crossroads in, in many, many ways. You know, we live in a constitutional republic. It's not a democracy, by the way. It's not a straight up popular vote. But if enough people vote for and elect certain representatives, whether it's the executive branch or the legislative, we may have to live with some outcomes that we didn't vote for or that we don't like or that we don't agree with. Now, I'm not weighing in there on anything. That's, again, just a statement. And that's the beauty of our American system as it is today. That's why I came prepared for this. Ta-da! And this. Ta-da! Pastor Ken, it looks like you're hedging your bets. A picture of um, a Trump-Pence sign, yard sign, and then a picture of a Biden-Harris. Come on. I'm not hedging my bets. I showed you those signs to remind us of something really, really important, okay? Much more important than who's going to win this thing. We always, always need to remember, however this election or any election turns out, we need to remember at least these two things. Number one... God is still good. God is always good, okay? The Bible tells us in Romans 8, 28, we know that God causes all things, all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. King David in the Psalms reminds us that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all of his works. You see, those two truths are totally independent of, well, sure, God is good. My candidate won. Or, I don't know if God is so good. My candidate lost. No, God is good. Period. God is good. And that truth 
should never waver or be dependent upon circumstances or situations or, or even election outcomes, okay? Hey, even if the situation, circumstance, and in this case, election outcomes is not good, and I mean literally, it not, might not be good, not just an opinion or a preference, but literally not good. We can always, always trust God that he will use it for good or somehow bring good out of it. Which leads me to the second reminder. God is not only always good, God is also sovereign. Sovereign means that God is supreme in his power and his authority. He is superior in his position and his rule. That means that God is accomplishing and always somehow will be accomplishing his will, his plan, his purpose. Sometimes in spite of elections or circumstances, situations. You see, even in and through elections and elected officials, we can know this. Romans 13.1 tells us, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and those which are established by God. You know, we may go, hey, yeah, that's easy for Paul to say. He doesn't live in America. No, he lived in Rome. The Roman government was so anti-God, anti-Christian, pro-persecution, great resistance to the gospel, much religious oppression. It was a way of life, and yet Paul could write those words about God's sovereignty. Daniel wrote in the second chapter of his book, the 21st verse, it is God who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. You see, over David's, excuse me, over Daniel's lifetime, he lived that out in so many ways firsthand. Nebuchadnezzar was one of the kings that he lived under. He was the one that brought Judah into captivity. He was the one who was this powerful ruler and because of pride, God humbled him for seven years. He lived out eating grass and acting like a madman. Then God reestablished him. Belshazzar, the one who the handwriting is on the wall, lost his kingdom and overnight was killed. Darius the Mede, he was the one that had Daniel thrown in the lion's den. And finally Cyrus, a pagan king who God used in powerful ways to let Nehemiah and people go back to rebuild the wall at Jerusalem. So it's really true when the Bible says this in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like a channel of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Church, God is still in control and God can use any leader that he so chooses to accomplish his plan and his will and his purpose. I think one of the greatest summary statements in all of scripture specific to politics and governments and even elections is found in Colossians chapter one. Let me read verses 16 and 17 for you. For by him, and that's talking about Jesus, for by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Repeat after me. God's got this. He's got this, okay? Say that to somebody right now. He's got this. God's got this. And if you're sitting all by yourself, go find a mirror and tell yourself, because it is the truth. So, 
If it's Biden-Harris, he's God's man. They're God's ticket. God will use them. If it's Trump and Pence, he's God's man. They're God's ticket. God will use them. I remember back in 2016, after the election was decided and Donald Trump was the president, I, I preached the message, I'm not sure this was the exact title, but the, the crux of it was, Donald Trump, God's man. I had a person leave the church, said to me, how in the world can you be for Donald Trump? You see, that wasn't the point at all. The point was, if God allowed him or anybody to be president, then God is going to use that person. And I believe that with all my heart, no matter how this election turns out, it's the same today. Even as we look at Colossians 1, 16 and 17, whether it's thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, and Jesus holds it all together. Life in America, life in this world, is not about political parties or exercising political power, whether it's for good or bad, or whether it appears to be for good or bad. Politics and parties are just a tool, okay? They're just a vehicle used by God for a bigger and better purpose, and that purpose is the advancement of his kingdom. You see, it's ultimately not about Republicans and Democrats. It's ultimately about God's kingdom, his rule, his reign, his will being done on this earth. That's why even in the midst of elections and voting and political activism, all of those good things, by the way, here is what needs to be our constant reminder. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's Matthew 6, 33. And then as we pray, we should pray this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's from what we call the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. Hey, it's okay. It's fine. It's, it's good to have prayed for a candidate that you wanted to see elected it's okay to feel good or to feel badly if the election results don't go the way that you would hope they would. But just remember this in the midst of that. God is always good and he's always sovereign. He's still in control, all right? He's still bringing about his will and his rule in the affairs of this world, no matter who it is that sits in any political position. He ultimately is responsible for the outcomes. Now, that's a mystery. That doesn't make perfect sense, but we know it's true. You see, his kingdom has come the first time Jesus came to this earth, and it is still coming, and it will come again in its totality, in its fullness, when Jesus comes again. Always remember that. Don't get too focused on politics and elections. Remember, it's about the kingdom the kingdom of God, his will, his rule, his reign on this earth. Now, before I move on to the you asked for it question of the day, I want to share a story with you from the gospel of Mark that I think is a needed reminder of what I've just been saying, but also, and this is a very personal comment I'm making, I think it's a great, it is for me anyhow, it's a great Holy Spirit convicting reminder that I need to let Jesus be king and him be the solution to our problems. His way, on his terms, and in his perfect timing. And I'll be honest with you, I don't always do that as well as I would like. I'm guessing maybe you don't either. 
Anyhow, the story is from Good Friday, over 2,000 years ago. It's a story I, I think you know, but you may have never thought about it in, in this light before, all right? Um, I was listening to a podcast by uh, Peter Cesaro. Um, he's a pastor. He's the author of the book, The Emo Emotionally Healthy Church. And so I want to give credit where credit is due. Some of the ideas I'm about to share come from him. He at least um, kind of got the thoughts rolling in my mind. This is out of Matthew chapter 15, starting at verse 6. Now at the feast... Pilate used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over, Jesus over, because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Well, what's going on in this story? Who is this Barabbas? Why release him and not Jesus? Well, Barabbas was a political activist in his day, all right? He was a patriotic nationalist. He was very instrumental in trying to overthrow Rome. And you see, Rome was the sworn arch enemy of the Jews. Rome had come into Jerusalem and into uh, their nation and had taken over and had assumed control. They exercised political power over over the Jews. And, and in essence, what the people were saying, hey, murder can be overlooked in this case. At least he's trying to do what we need him to do. Earlier in the story, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on, on that colt of a donkey, and they said, Hosanna, save us now. They were fully expecting Jesus to come and to, to start a political overthrow. That he would literally be an earthly king and an earthly ruler. When he rode in on that donkey instead of a white horse, what a conquering king would ride, he was making a statement to them. The statement was this, hey, I am your savior. I am here to save you, but not in the way that you want to be saved or that you assume is the best way to be saved. And the people's response, nope, that's not what we want. That's not what we're looking for. We'll look somewhere else. Wow. And uh, Pete Cesaro said, when it comes to Jesus, we too many times want action now and we want it our way. And I think, I'll speak for me, I think too often we assume that it's going to be political parties and their agenda that's going to fix our problems as well. Here's, here's the most convicting thing he said in this podcast. We don't like the nonviolent, slow-moving, meek, enemy-loving, wait on God in order to follow his direction, his leading, in his perfect timing, Jesus. No. And you see, the question we have to ask is, do we really believe that his way will work and work best? Is he really enough? And the way he wants to accomplish his will and plan, is it really enough? Man, when I heard that, I, I had to say, ouch, because at times I'm, I'm guilty of that. I have this, do it now, Jesus, and do it this way. Use the president or the Congress or the political party or, or whatever. 
But Jesus, do it that way. Hey, and I want to say this too. I think political parties and political activism can help and should try to help. And when I say try to help, I mean work to be vehicles and instruments of godliness and, and righteousness with regards to, to upholding godly values and the standards that are in God's word, his moral laws in terms of legislation and the bills you pass and the, the bills you protect. But politics will never cure what ails America. Jesus is the only one who can fix the mess that we're in. And we're in a mess. However, there is a role that God calls us to play in this process of bringing healing and his kingdom, his will to our nation. So that leads me into uh, today's You Asked For It topic. How do you love in a world that is so, so divided? That's a great question. And I've got a couple simple little things I think will be very helpful, okay? The first thing that we need to do is to discern the times in which we live. Paul makes a little summary statement in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, kind of a state of the world summary, all right? And this is what he writes. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lover of pleasures rather than lover of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Now, when he's talking about the last days here, he's not trying to infer, infer that it's tomorrow or it's any day now, okay? It's a statement that says we're living in a time when it's getting closer and closer to Jesus' return, his coming again. So get ready, be ready, live ready. You see, in these days, the, the love of God and the desire for God's will, God's ways, and I'll speak to America, it's on the, it's on the decline. It's, it's going down. It's, it's not the value that it used to be. A couple years ago, I, I did a whole series on the book of the Revelation. And amidst all the, the bad stuff that that book talks about, the trials and the tribulations and persecution and corruption and how the world is just so falling away from God, the very first verse in the book says, these things must soon take place. That wasn't written to scare us, rather to encourage us and to prepare us to be ready, to, to know what's coming, but to live as God would have us live in this world, to be a witness, to advance the kingdom, and to live as he would want us to live. And that means loving in a world that is so divided. I, I wish I knew who uh, submitted that question because it is such a great question and such a timely one as well. You see, we have to come to grips with this church, no matter which way this election turns out or no matter what is, we, we find is the outcome, the polarization, the division is not going to be solved by the outcome as a matter of fact, I think it's only going to get worse. It's going to get worse. 
So Paul gives us kind of a state of the world, sign of the times summary in 2 Timothy 3. But then Jesus turns it around and says something even more important in light of what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3. You see, Jesus puts it back on us in essence, as to how we are going to be tempted to respond to these difficult times. He is clearly reminding us in this one short little verse I'm about to share with you what he expects and what he desires from his people, what the right response should be to these difficult times and all that's going on. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus also is talking about the end times and what it's going to be like prior to his return. Not that he's coming tomorrow, but he's setting the stage. And he makes this one little statement in Matthew 24, 12. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Uh, you don't have to pay a whole lot of attention to realize that lawlessness and chaos is all over our nation in so many different ways, so many different forms. It is absolutely on the rise. You know, it's into that reality that Jesus gives us the caution that he gives. He predicts something, and at the same time, he forewarns us not to fall prey to this temptation. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love, some versions say the love of the many, will grow cold. The word for love there is the word agape. And so Jesus here is not talking about the state of the world. He's speaking to his church, to his people, to his bride. And he's saying, Christian, your God-given ability to love other people with a selfless kind of love, agape love, will grow cold because of lawlessness if you're not careful. You see that word will grow cold um, without going into great detail. It's the Greek word, let me get this right, sugasate. Sugasate, very rarely used word, but it is such an amazing descriptive word. It's what, literally, it's what you do when you have a steaming hot cup of coffee, too hot to drink. You, you blow on it to cool it off. And that is, I think, the best word picture that Jesus could ever give. You cool something off by blowing upon it. And the picture he's painting here is that the spirit of lawlessness is going to act like a wind, a prevailing attitude and atmosphere that blows across the nation and the world and causes our love to grow cold. That's what this lawlessness is attempting to do, and we can't let it happen. We cannot retreat. We can't withdraw. We can't live in fear and despair because there's so much lawlessness out in the world. 2 Timothy 3, 5 at the end talks about avoiding such men as this, but that's talking about the last person described, the last group described, so-called so Christians who deny the power of God. That's who we're to avoid. We are never called to avoid the world or people. And we don't live in the world like the world, but it's those people that we are still to connect with and care for and love with God's kind of love. You see, my only hope 
in being able to do that, I think is your only hope also. So there's a couple things I want to share with you today. How do you keep your love from growing cold? How do you love in a godly way in a world that is so divided? The first thing I think that's imperative is that we stay closer to Jesus than ever before. 1 John 4, 18 and 19 says, there's no fear in love in agape love, in God's kind of love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love, we have the ability, the capacity to love because he first loved us. I need to be honest again. It is so easy for me to overfocus on all the problems in the world and all the lawlessness and the potential transformation that's coming to America in terms of changing our nation from its very core, moving us further away from God. I need to realize, I need to be honest with myself and honest with God. I cannot love others like Jesus wants me to without his help. And that help looks like me, you, taking time, spending time, focusing on my relationship with him, centering in on how much he loves me, because it's out of that reserve and that wellspring of his love in me that I then can be empowered to love those around me. But you need to soak in that love. You need to spend time as you do in any relationship that you want to cultivate. It takes time. You need to soak in God's love his grace, his strength, the ability he wants to give you and me to love others. It's what abiding that Jesus talks about in John 15 is all about. It's soaking in his love. And that's more than just, oh, I feel God's love today. As important as that is, it's experiencing it for myself, but it's also being empowered by his spirit to act in loving ways and to engage with the world around us. Remember, love is a verb. Love is a verb. 1 John 3.18 says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue only, but in deed and in truth. Church, we can't withdraw. We can't grow cold. We have to engage. We have to remain as salt and light in this world. That means we have to be influencers. We have to be difference makers for God's kingdom. Remember, love is a verb. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I want to I bring great caution to all of us in light of what Jesus just said here, okay? We need to be extremely careful in terms of labeling anybody as our enemy. Now, with discernment, you can clearly at times see that there are people who are enemies of the gospel. That, that's not in doubt. But we have to be careful just throwing that title or assuming that about somebody. I didn't vote for Ben Affleck. Okay, Ben Affleck wasn't running for president. But... Parade Magazine asked a lot of different celebrities, a hundred different people, if you were president, what would you do? This is what Ben Affleck said. I think it's profound. I would impress upon people that you don't need to despise somebody just because you disagree with them. Wow. 
I think the Republican Party and the Democratic Party should take note of that. You see, different opinions, different desires politically, even different agendas do not automatically make somebody your enemy or, or give you reason to hate. And, you know, you may be tempted to say, well, well, Pastor Kent, they hate me. They think I'm the enemy. My response to that is two words. So what? That really isn't a factor. It's what Jesus said to, to Peter at the end of the Gospel of John when Peter was asking, well, what's going to happen to John? Jesus said, what's that to you? You just follow me. And I think that's the same advice Jesus wants to give us. Don't just instantly or too quickly label somebody as your enemy. Realize, understand this also. The goal of almost every political campaign these days is to demonize the other side. Have you watched the commercials that have been on television for politics and for politicians? That's their express purpose, to demonize the other side. Don't take the bait, okay? Don't take the bait. God expects us not to judge like that, to not label people instantly as our enemies, but rather to be proactive, to, to make for peace wherever we can, to engage others who differ from us the right way, the godly way. And that's what I want to finish with today. What does that mean? What might that look like? Again, I think first it means Take a good hard look inside yourself and let God's grace be the agent that changes you and that helps you. We need, all of us need to realize our sinful nature pulls us towards judgment. Jesus wrote in Matthew 7, 1 and 2, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Those two verses have been so taken out of context and their meaning has been so twisted that what he's saying here is, is lost on so many people. Jesus is not saying, hey, don't ever evaluate behavior as right or wrong. That's judging and you shouldn't do that. You see, when you read the book of 1 John, and we've gone there a couple times looking at the love of God, all the great encouragement that he gives us to walk in the love of God, to experience and know God's love firsthand, is inseparably linked also to walking in and knowing the truth of God's word. We need to be people who know biblical right from wrong so that we can walk in obedience because obedience is important. We need to have wisdom in order to know the truth and properly apply it to our lives, to not be confused about what God says right and wrong is. We need to have courage to speak up and speak out about behavior that's contrary to God's word. And there's a very specific way to do that I'm going to get to in a minute. But when something is contrary to his standard, to his will, we don't need to be and shouldn't be afraid to, to say so said the right way. We also need discernment, okay? We need to know when a difference is not really a sin, but rather it's a matter of opinion or of a person's choice. On the opposite side of that coin, we need to be crystal clear when something is a sin. We need to have great grace with other people and we need to be willing to confront the log in our own eye before we judge other people. 
the first thing we need to do is to look at the log in our own eye. Jesus talked about that so clearly. You see, one thing I think that I so easily forget, and I think we're all guilty of it, one of the biggest traps when sin first entered into the world, back in Genesis chapter 3, the lie that Satan told Adam and Eve was this. You have the capacity to be like God. You can know good from evil. No, we don't. We don't have that capacity. Only God in his infinite wisdom and holiness and righteousness can literally know good from evil. Now, we are called, absolutely called to follow his lead, to know the truth from his word, his standard according to evil, according to what is right and wrong. And then we need to conform our lives to what he says about good and evil. But the problem is too often, too easily, we view our differences or our differing opinions or our different choices as right and wrong when they're not. They're just choices. And even in the case of differences aren't just opinions or choice, they literally are sin, we have a tendency because of original sin towards moral superiority. Here's what I mean by that. Listen, I know better than you about right and wrong. Therefore, I am better than you. You see, that's the kind of judging Jesus is talking about not doing. It's not evaluating behavior. It's having that kind of attitude behind that evaluation. God wants to kill that in us. If we're going to be effective in, in loving well in this world so divided, he needs to kill that in us. How does he do that? Well, again, first of all, you need to be secure in who you are in Christ. You need to be rooted and grounded in his love first. So you have the capacity, the empowerment to love like he would love. You also need to be grounded in the truth of his word in terms of what he says, not you and I say, about sin, about what's right and wrong. And we need to always, always, always remember that it was grace that both saved you and me and changed you and me and is continuing to change you and me. We are not morally superior just because we are followers of Christ. You see, when you, when you remember those things, it, it helps take the fight out of us, okay? We don't have to prove that we're right. We don't have to be on that crusade to prove that we're right and somebody else is wrong. We don't have to convince other people that they're wrong. We don't have to prove anything. We don't have to defend God. That's plenty big to defend himself. That's not our job. So what is our job? What do we need to do? How do you engage? How do you love well the people that you differ from? How do you love in a world so divided? Now, this isn't all there is, all that you can do, but it's at least something you can do. It's a place to start. The first thing is to practice kindness and truth. Proverbs 3, 3 and 4 says, Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good reputation in the sight of God and man. Church, there is a very clear order of importance given here. It is kindness first, and then we get to truth. It says to bind them around your neck. 
Write them on the tablet of your heart. That's because it's so easy to forget that. It's so easy to fall back into the knowledge of good and evil and think that we're morally superior and it's all about proving we're right and you're wrong. That's backwards, okay? Kindness first. Kindness is defined as this. To be kind is to be appropriate, to be gracious, to be tender, to be mild, to be full of goodwill, to be benevolent. Benevolence means you want to promote the prosperity and happiness of another person. You care more about how you care for them than whether you're right and they're wrong or vice versa. It's saying, I care more about you than about being right. And that is a mature Christian godly attitude that we need. Every time I get this flipped around, every time I'm, I want to tend to go to truth first, then kindness... I get angry, I get frustrated, I get contentious, and I get judgy. That kind of judge not that Jesus is talking about. I get judgmental. Then I alienate, I withdraw, I, I, I focus on the division, and I make it worse. And I do this more privately than publicly, but it's so easy for me to belittle and, and name call. Can I just say to you that if you name call, you are stupid, Now, what did I just do there? I did that on purpose. Did that cause you to feel defensive? What what do you call? Yeah, that's exactly the point. When we enter into this name calling and all that kind of stuff, belittling others, they're going to get defensive. Rightly so. So do we. No, kindness and then truth because we'll find favor if we do that. Favor pulls people your way. Favor literally is kindness returned to you. Now, we got to go first. We got to start the kindness trip, but it comes back to us. It increases our ability and our desire to talk and to listen and to engage, and it works both ways. You see, it's not We have to agree on everything and we have to convince everybody of what is truth and what is right and what is wrong. It's all about we just need to get to the place where we can be heard and we can consider ourselves and help others consider both directions in an issue. Church, that's maturity. That's what we're called to. Final verse, Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. We have to be people who don't use harsh words. Don't make this all about right and wrong, first and foremost. It's not truth and kindness. It's always kindness and truth. As Christians, we need to practice that. You see, we ought to be able to have conversation about things like racial injustice. Beyond just pointing out all the symptoms we ought to be able to get at the root of of why that is and confess our own sins if that's in us. Get at the root and not assign blame. Don't name call. But I also want to say, if you engage in that conversation, you don't have to own every accusation you might be accused of. I don't know why I want to say this, but I I do. I want to finish with this and then we're going to pray. Because this is a big one for me. I... I would love to have a conversation about Black Lives Matter, okay? I mean, I have a a black daughter, and of course, Black Lives Matter. Who in the world would say that's not the truth? But you know, as a Christian, 
the godly perspective is all lives matter. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God doesn't want to see anybody perish. All lives matter. I, I want to understand why is that so inflammatory? What don't I understand? What am I missing? I want to know. I want to have that kindness and truth dialogue. And if you want to call me and have coffee so we can talk about that, I'm really willing to do that. that that's one out of many things. But I hope you hear my heart because I think it's God's heart. How do we start having conversation about those things? I think it's kindness and truth at its core and everything else I said today. Okay, let's pray. Well, Father, um, this is a weird moment because uh, I want to pray for the election outcome um, with regards to the president, the House of Representatives, the Senate, all the way down to local leaders and, and ballot issues in each and every state. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. But we want to say, we, we remind ourselves that you are good and you are sovereign. We trust you. I pray, Lord, away from the nation towards us, would you please help us identify cold love if it's in our hearts? Would we be able to confess it, agree with the truth that it's there and ask you to change that in us? Father, give us the grace to draw near to you, to be healed of that. Heal our fears, heal anything in us that resists being the people that you call us to be. Give us the grace to enter into to the division that we see all around us as peacemakers. Help us practice kindness and truth in that order so that we can be about the business of advancing your kingdom here in America, here in Loveland, in the world in which each of us live. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you. I pray you have a great week. And um, however this election turns out, everything I said today, we need to take to heart and remember. God be with you. Have a great week. 